Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn in them to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, as we return to our study of this great gospel, we have been learning so much about our Lord and what it means and looks like to follow Him. And I trust that it has been a spiritual or has been really spiritually challenging to us as we have been exhorted and encouraged. I I trust as you have been thinking about all that God requires of you as a Christian, I trust that has challenged your heart, that it has encouraged your heart, it has exhorted your heart, but I also trust that it has helped to solidify in your heart, the certainty about Jesus Christ and all that He is to us as Christians. Because He is sufficient for us in every way. Luke wants, of course, his friend Theophilus, as we saw back in chapter 1, to have certainty about all that he has heard about Jesus Christ And that is the Holy Spirit's intent for us as well, as here we are to read the words of Luke as he penned them by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit thousands of years ago. As those who will believe upon Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls, the Holy Spirit wants us to have certainty within our pilgrimage within our sojourning on this earth as Christians, as the people of God, there are a whole host of things that are at work to trip us up in our obedience to the Lord. It is true that the prince of the power of the air is at work in and through the systems of the world, the ideologies of the world, the ways in which the world carries out what the world does by means of its own iniquity, all of that being used by Satan himself to tempt and to deceive through all that the world offers. One of the greatest ways is through money, through material, through stuff. The Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Paul, of course, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy, didn't mean by the term money that that item by which you take out of your pocket in order to purchase things. Certainly it includes that when he talks about that, but what is meant by money is anything you value. Anything you value. That which we treasure. That's certainly more than maybe the few dollars you may have in your pocket. We treasure a whole lot more. The love of material things certainly fits the category of that which we value, but other things fit that as well. Our our flesh treasures feelings. Our flesh treasures emotions. We can 
love relationships materialistically. So the idea of money is simply that which we treasure, what we value. And therefore, we can say that materialism is the root of all kinds of evils. Materialism, not materialism by means of just material things, but materialism by anything that fits the bill of that which we treasure in a way that the Bible tells us we ought not. I suppose you could even say that one of those evils is pandering to self. The love of self is an outworking of the love of treasure. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 goes on to say this, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. In other words, it is the reality of the heart by which a love for self is manifested in the delusion that if I fulfill my cravings, if I fulfill my strong desires for whatever that is I want, for whatever the treasure is offering me, then I will be fine in life. Everything within my life, everything within my circumstance, everything within my moment, everything within my day will be great. When in fact... The very opposite is true. Because it is actually the result of not trusting what you say you trust and thereby actually bringing upon yourself, as verse 11 says in 1 Timothy 6, all kinds of sorrows. I was thinking about this recently this week. It's interesting to me that one of the most interesting realities for us as humans is that we all probably categorically and universally proclaim a lack of greediness. There are few, probably relatively speaking, who would say they're greedy and they're okay with it. We proclaim that we have a lack of greediness in life. And yet, when it comes to the death of someone, particularly someone who is related to us, especially if that someone had a whole lot of earthly goods, we wonder what part will be ours. We begin to wonder, we begin to think about and spend time thinking about how we're going to use whatever it is that will be ours. There's one thing about greed. No thinking Christian believes that greed is a good thing. And yet, it is deceptively attractive, and sadly it is practiced by most in some area of life. And so again, here we are, before Jesus Christ in Luke, we are confronted once again with living for Christ. Not only in word, but in deed. 
And in our text, we have seen the ease with which the religious hypocrisy of, of those who claim to know God, those who claim to have a righteous life, it's with what ease the, it is manifested in their life. And even through that, as we were studying, we should have recognized the ease with which religious hypocrisy can be manifested in our own hearts. And one of the ways that is manifested is by the reality of greed. And this is what Jesus is addressing in our text this morning. If you're not there already, we're in Luke chapter 12. We are beginning in verse 13 and going down to verse 21. Follow along as I read it for us. Luke writes for us, Someone in the crowd said to him, that is said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And then he said to them, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, because not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Penetrating sharp, weighty exhortation from the Lord of glory to those who would follow him. Someone in the crowd shouts out a personal question to Jesus. We're not told who this person is. It is from someone unknown, this unknown person who for all intents and purposes, at least from the question, is consumed with getting his portion of some inheritance from some family member who ostensibly has died, at least that a death has occurred, would be a fair assumption. And what Jesus had said previously, quite possibly now a short bit of time has passed, at least, at the very least, some lengthy pause has taken place between verse 12 and verse 13. And this person thought, okay, now I have my opportunity to interject my question. There's a lull in what Jesus is saying. The crowd maybe has hushed for a moment. 
to such an extent that this man thought he could at least project his voice out enough so that he would be heard. There's own personal desire here is what's on his mind. And surprisingly, since this person would have just heard the teaching of Jesus about hypocrisy, it's rather shocking, isn't it? Jesus talked about religious hypocrisy and how it reveals itself. And here is this one who has heard that message and now he hollers out this question. But since the rabbis and the lawyers were the ones who could adjudicate these kinds of things among the Jews, this person decides to see if Jesus will take care of his own trouble. Verse 14 clearly tells us that Jesus gives him a quick and a blunt answer. Who am I who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? In other words, that's not what I came here to do. I didn't come here to settle your little petty earthly problems that you think are important to you. I didn't come here for that. If this person thought they were honoring Jesus by appealing to his authority in some kind of way, they were quickly, gravely mistaken. Jesus came to do greater things than to deal with earthly issues. He isn't going to be sucked into some kind of domestic issue. And so Jesus takes this occasion to warn his followers about greed. And really, we know that's the intent of the heart of this man. Jesus knows the heart of man. No one needs to show him and tell him about the heart of man. He knows it. He is God. He created man. He knows the sin of man because he came to die for the sin of man. He knows what Proverbs says, out of the heart flows the springs of life. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus knows that even this question that comes out of this man is born out of a heart that is bent on getting bent on treasuring things here for the sake of here. And so Jesus begins to give his followers a parable, an occasion to simply tell them about how they ought to be thinking. And I want to simply just walk through this together and then draw out what it says to us. The first thing that I want to just highlight here is first the warning that Jesus gives. Notice verse 15. He says to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Here is a warning from the mouth of our Lord that doesn't simply just apply to this man who is unnamed, but every one of us. And you notice that it simply tells us that greed is not simply one thing. Greed is not only about money. It comes, as the word is translated here, in many forms. The word is passes. It's the word all. And it means in all kinds of ways. Beware and and. Put your guard against all the kinds of greed that is available, that is out there. There are a whole lot. Why I said at the beginning that it isn't just about money. You can love money. You can love prestige. 
You can love pleasure. You can love any number of things, but the root of them all is the same. It is actually a love of and a love for self. Greed is the manifestation of a love for self, a love for relief, a love for comfort, a love for ease. It is a love for self over a love of and a trust in God for that same relief, comfort, and ease. Some of your translations even use the word covetousness. Beware, be on guard against every form of covetousness. That just means to have a strong desire for more than what you have. But it's more than that. It's more than just the Strong desire, which is a different word in even the original language, epithumia, which means this pull of the heart. It's more than just that because it is a desire that is accompanied with a belief that what you have is actually the essence of life rather than Jesus Christ. So it is a desire with a settled belief in the fulfillment of that desire, that that desire being fulfilled will in fact solve whatever the problem is that I want it to solve. In other words, greed or covetousness is the unhindered desire for more in the temporal life whether it be stuff or whether it be attitudinal or emotional. It's the the desire for more of that because of defining this life by the reality that those things are what satisfies me in this life rather than what God would have. That is simply to say that if something other than Christ is what gives me life satisfaction in every moment of life, then I am greedy for that something. In fact, as Christians, we all love the book of Proverbs, don't we? We love the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is called the book of wisdom. It is the wisdom book. We call it that. And we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's exactly how the Proverbs begin. And so the Proverbs teach us how to fear God in practice. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, so if I'm going to be wise in my living, I need to fear God. And Proverbs helps us understand how to live out this fear of God. And this is by following, it says, what it tells us. Doing what it says. Proverbs 21 verse 26 tells us this about greed. All day long he, that is speaking of the lazy person, all day long he craves and craves. But the righteous gives and does not hold back. Now that verse tells us that there is the manifested difference in the heart of the righteous and those who are not righteous. There is an expressed outworking in the life of the one who is righteous as they think about life and the things of life and the one who is not. One continually wants more 
even though in the end they do nothing to gain that. But the righteous person desires to honor God. Now, before we continue, I want to say something just here as a side note. Sometimes these side notes are the most important part of the message, so you pay attention. What is genuine in the heart isn't always what we manifest outwardly as Christians. Let me say that again. What is genuine in our heart isn't always what we manifest outwardly as Christians. Why? Because we can be dishonest as Christians. And we are still Christian. We sin as Christian. We can be dishonest as Christian. We live outwardly sometimes what isn't genuinely in our hearts. Sometimes we get into these ideas that if we disobey at all, then we are out of the salvation that we were in. Or we were never in it. We need to remember that our salvation, in other words, our justification before God is not bound up in what we do. It is bound up in what He did. It is bound up in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, what He has done. The outworking of that salvation is an ongoing reality as we are changed into the Christ-likeness of Christ over time. That's called sanctification. We can't flip that on its head. We can't make sanctification the means by which we are justified. Justification is a done deal. We've talked about this in the past, but I think I need to remind us of this because when we hear doctrines like we're hearing this morning here in Luke chapter 12, we can get the idea, particularly if our life has areas in which we're pricked by the Holy Spirit that we, that we are feeding our flesh and we are feeding ourselves, and we have desires for me and, and, and yet I, I, I trust God, I, I believe in God, and yet I find my life in these areas where I where I'm sinning and I'm, and I'm doubting things about God. I, and so I get into this area where I think, man, I must not be saved at all. We become overly burdened. And I'm not here to say, to try to ease your conscience before the Holy Spirit and before God. That's between you and the Lord with your conscience. But make sure your conscience is bound to every part of Scripture, not just part of it. Jesus Christ said, you can't get your way into salvation and you can't get your way out of it. Because no one is more powerful than me. Nothing can snatch you from my hand. You have to remember that truth. And remember the promises of God when he says, if you believe upon me, you will be saved. Even in those moments of utter failure, you get up and you confess your sin before God and you begin to walk in obedience before God, thanking him for the forgiveness that you have in Jesus Christ, knowing that one day all this will be gone. One day you will be utterly perfect. You will be in glory. And the sin element will be finally vanquished in God. The outworking of our salvation is an ongoing reality. It is not through 
our own obedience that we are saved, albeit imperfectly this side of glory. So we can genuinely love the Lord, but disobey God. That doesn't make our disobedience okay in the eyes of a holy father who loves his children and will chasten us. It just means that we Christians are in a process. We're in a process of sanctification, and the goal here is not perfection. The goal here is striving to be like Christ. So Jesus says here in Luke chapter 12, beware of greed. Why? Why? Well, I'll give us just two reasons here so far. Because it is deceptively attractive and it is eternally dangerous. Beware of greed in every kind because it is deceptively attractive and eternally dangerous. In fact, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 says this to us as believers. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. In other words, the continual desire for, and therefore the continual manifestation of those fleshly fallen practices that are listed there, amount to idolatry. We know what idolatry is. Idolatry is worshiping something other than who ought to be worshiped, which is God. And all of those things are the manifestation of the flesh that says, I love me more than God. And so just like Someone who has died physically, we are to consider those desires, those practices as dead to us. Just like a dead corpse doesn't desire to do any earthly thing. It can't. It's dead. It's unanimated by the Spirit. There is no Spirit. So too, we who have died with Christ are dead to sinful earthly things. And one of those is greed. Greed. And so Jesus warns this man here in Luke 12 who shouts the question out and he warns all of us about greed in all of its forms. Why? Why? Well, here's the principle. Here's the principle. Verse 15. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. We could even say it this way. For when one even has an abundance of whatever it is you desire, not even when all of your desires for having your feelings settled in every way, when you have an abundance of all of that so that your feelings are never emotionally at wreck or your emotions are always settled, even when you have an abundance of all of that, when you have an abundance of all the material stuff and everything in both the physical and even in your non-material reality, life isn't made up of that. Every circumstance in life being settled and perfect and right doesn't Define life. Have you ever ever used this phrase to describe something you were you were involved in or or some home you had or maybe even the home you have now or 
and the circumstances of life you have, some possession you have, something you desired, some circumstance, some, some emotional fulfillment of your life, and you, you get it, right? God allows by His grace somehow for you to have this thing that, that maybe you've, you've sinfully desired, you have it, and you say either aloud or at least in your mind, man, this is living. This is living. Driving down that road in that nice car you've always wanted. You said, man, now I'm living now. You got that house you want, man, now I'm living. Have you ever said that? Maybe I'm the only one. I remember when I was a junior higher, and I had to do an assignment in school about what our desire was for future employment. What kind of job we want. And about that time, baseball players were projected to have a salary of $60,000 a year. 1975. I was like, man, man, I, I want to be a baseball player. That's living. Surely I'm not the only one who's had that kind of thought. In fact, I would venture to say that some of us here have thought that in our own minds just about every day if those words aren't heard. Why? Because we have things that we have wanted and we've convinced ourselves that if we have them, then we're all good. I've got it. I'm living now. In other words, we subtly define life by the things we have or what we do or, or even who we know. By the feelings and the emotions of life that I like or don't like. Whatever it is. And Jesus says that is the heart of a greedy person. That's a greedy heart. Because the greedy person lives as if the most important things of life come through what you have or come through what you do or come through who you know. And yet Jesus says the very opposite. He says not one person will gain or lose actual life by any of that stuff. Why? Because life consists solely in our relationship with God alone. That's what life consists. Not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his abundance. That's the idea. When we all leave this earth, we leave all of our abundance to others. All of our emotions die with us. All of our circumstances die with us. All of the stuff that we have goes to someone else. And we all know the little cliche. We've said it to ourselves. Each one of us, whoever has attended a funeral, understands this. No hearse is towing a trailer of stuff. They don't do that. Although... I was thinking about this. Many of the ancient Egyptians tried to do that, right? They built big tombs and put all their stuff in it, hoping that they would have all that stuff in their afterlife, and they even took their relatives with them. 
how utterly foolish it is to be convinced that life is defined by any of the things around us or our own thoughts about life. That kind of convincing comes only from one's own sinful heart. It doesn't come from God. To have life, we must look to something greater than the abundance of possessions, greater than the abundance of our own desires. And this is really Jesus' point here in Luke chapter 12. And so Jesus' point here is to give them this parable to help them see this clearly. Notice what he says in verses 16 through 20, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones and there will and there I will store all my grain and my goods and I'll say to my soul soul you've many goods laid up for many years to come take your ease eat drink and be merry god says to him you fool this very night your soul is required of you and now who will own what you have prepared. It's interesting, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples. The text says, this one man calls out to him, and he says to him, it says in verse 14, but in verse 15 he says, then he said to them, to them. He draws his attention to his disciples. Why? Because he wants them to understand fully what he is saying. Certainly others would hear what he is saying, but these are the ones who have committed themselves to Jesus. And so he draws out an illustration. That's what a parable is. It's just an illustration that Jesus is using by means of the agrarian society in which they lived in order to teach this reality about greed. It's an illustration from life. And he says, a rich man, the land of a rich man. No name here is given either. Normally, when someone was wealthy, the name was always included, but the name isn't important here. No name's given. No name is needed. It could have been any rich man. In fact, it could be any of us, even though we may not be materially wealthy by means of money, all of us are wealthy by means of the things we do desire. We are rich in thinking about ourselves. And so it doesn't exclude any who are not materially rich because all of us understand greediness comes in all kinds of ways. So this is just any rich person. And we can't can't begin to think here that it is a sin to be monetarily rich. Let's not think that. Right? Jesus is not even implying that here. In fact, many of the Old Testament patriarchs are rich. Abraham was a rich man. Many of a godly person within Scripture were monetarily rich. Zacchaeus was a highly wealthy man who was saved by Jesus Christ. Matthew was a tax gatherer like Zacchaeus. He would have been 
quite wealthy because of the job he had before salvation. So the issue here is not that of monetary riches, but rather what one thinks of whatever form of riches it is. In fact, here this man was gaining material riches from his farm, it seems, from his land. His land was very productive, Jesus says. So it isn't even ill-gotten gain. It's not as if he's going to the casino or buying lottery tickets with the money that's God's and, and gaining some kind of filthy lucre that way. He's not getting it by holding back wages from the workers on his land or extorting people. It seems that he's an honest man. It seems that he probably would have been liked in the area, at least from the way Jesus unfolds this. His wealth is increasing. The land is in producing for him a bounty crop. It's, it's good. In fact, it's so much that what he had for storage couldn't accommodate it all. All sounds very good. And yet this is a parable about greed. Greed in its most innocent form. It's greed that doesn't appear greedy. It's greed that doesn't seem to appear all too greedy. He's greedy, and yet his greediness doesn't seem repulsive. Right? You read this, you're, you're not initially repulsed from it. You know the words of Jesus. Jesus is using this to teach a principle, but, but from just the general reality of it, I mean, this man has a, has a nice place. He, he, he plants the seed. I mean, shouldn't in that what he should do? And his crop's producing a bounty. Shouldn't he care for his crop? Shouldn't he actually keep it? It doesn't seem all that repulsive. There's an ugliness here that really doesn't seem ugly at all. In fact, He's gotten it, but the problem is he lives for these things. In other words, it was this stuff that filled his life. It was this stuff that filled his soul. He was a success to everybody around him, but his heart treasured treasure. His heart treasured treasure and not God. And that is the deceptive attractiveness of greed unknowingly, and even quite possibly as we sit here this day in our own heart, we are in great danger. This man was in great danger even though it seems so innocent. And even though it seems so relatively nondescript. He has a treasure for treasures. Notice how this deception works. Notice how it works. Notice verse 17 and 18. He began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. This is the deception of greediness. The deception of greediness causes our reason to be clouded with self rather than God. Let me say that again. The deception of greediness is the reality that it causes our reasoning to be clouded with self rather than God. It seems wise. It seems that he's doing what is prudent, but it's deceptive. And it's not just deceptive, it's deliberate. 
What is he to do with all this newfound product? What's he to do with all this newfound riches? What's he to do with all this newfound comfort that he's come upon? What's he to do with all this newfound situation in which he's now emotionally settled? What's he to do with all of that? By the way, don't miss how many times this text uses the pronouns I and my. Just in verses 17, 18, and 19 in the New American Standard, that pronoun is used one way or another, I or my, ten different times. Jesus is pointing out his love for self, which actually is the root of greed. It's a love of self. It's a love for self. And it's seen continuously in our world. Doesn't matter whether it's the believing world or the unbelieving world, unfortunately. God is far from this man's thoughts. And because God is far from his thoughts, God is far from his actions. He has a problem. He has a problem in a practical sense. There's no place to store his overabundance. He doesn't think of God in any of that. He doesn't thank God for it at all or think of God. He only acts in a self-absorbed way, convincing himself, this is living. This is living. That's why the deception of greed, secondly, causes us to begin to trust in what we treasure. Notice verse 19. He said, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry. The deception of greed causes our reason to be clouded. And the deception of greed causes us to begin to trust in what we treasure. You read some commentators on this passage and they believe that Jesus is addressing the idea of of, uh, retirement here. But Jesus is saying, you should never retire. It's wrong to retire. It's wrong to do that. As if to say, no one should ever retire. Well, that certainly wouldn't have been how the people of Luke's day would have understood this passage. They didn't have a social security department. They weren't paying taxes to Zacchaeus and the other tax collectors because in the future they were hoping to get some of that back so they could survive life. There wasn't any of that going on. They worked in an agrarian society. Life was always work. So I don't think Jesus is speaking about what we know as retirement today. We can have a discussion about whether there is a rightness or a wrongness to that if you want to privately, but we don't certainly know that what Jesus is talking about here is not that. He's talking about here a storing up of self-indulgence for self-satisfaction and excess and thinking all along, now I've arrived. This is what life is. This is what life is about. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry because this is what it is in life. This is where life really is. We say that in all kinds of ways. If I can just get my emotions in the right place, then I'll be living. 
if I can just ensure that my circumstances are the ones I want, then I'll be living. If I can just get my environment, the money, the people, my emotions, my attitudes, the way I am, whatever it is that makes sure that I'm comfortable with it, then I'll be living. Then I can eat, drink, and be merry. I can just relax. That's life. Man says to himself, eat, drink, and be merry. That's a description of a life that's built on self-absorption. Self-absorption. And so a life of retirement that says in the heart, this is living, that's not biblical. Not biblical. The obvious sin here was that this man was living as if God was no account in his life. I have barns, I've stored up my stuff. I don't have any place for this new stuff, so I'll build a bigger barn so I can keep this new stuff because this is living. He had none of the fear of God that Jesus referred to earlier in chapter 12. None of the fear of God. Isn't that what Jesus said? Don't fear man, fear God. I warn you, verse 5, whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. If the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, beloved, he surely had no wisdom. Seems like he has earthly wisdom. It seems like he's doing the right and prudent thing, and yet he has no fear of God, and therefore he has no wisdom in spite of all his material success. What a tragedy. What a tragedy to convince ourselves that we have arrived without ever considering where it is we're heading. And so while greed deceives us in our own reason, so that we begin to trust in what it is we have, the deception inevitably goes farther. Why? Because third, it causes us to be fools rather than wise as the inevitable always comes. Verse 20, God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who's going to own what you've prepared? I'll tell you what, none of us should ever want to hear those two words from God on us. You fool. You fool. But what made him foolish? What made him foolish? Did having riches make him foolish? No. No. Having riches didn't make him foolish. Being settled in circumstances doesn't make you foolish. Being settled in your emotions and settled in your areas of life that you desire doesn't make you Foolish, what makes you foolish is considering those things the essence of life. He was a fool because he failed to live in light of the fact that life is in the hand of God. Life is in the hand of God and the truly wise choose what is good for the eternal, not for the temporal. In other words, the wise rest in God and His sovereignty over Him. That's what the wise did. 
The wise understand the sovereign hand of God over all things in their life, and so the wise rest in Him. They treasure God more than stuff. They treasure God more than their own comfort. They treasure God more than their own feelings and their own emotions. Listen, when we are children, we have foolishness bound up in our heart. That's what Proverbs says. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. But what drives foolishness far from it is the rod of correction, the standard line of measurement that holds us up and says, you've come up short. The Bible says all have come up short. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Why? Because of our sin, we trust in ourselves. We think it's okay, God, I'll get there on my own. When we're old, we come to know God through His Son by faith. God says, don't equate life with stuff. Treasure me over self. We Christians know the principle well. We We know that life isn't the sum of the things we have or the things we gain in life here. But the question I have for us is this. Why are we pursuing ways to treasure our temporal stuff? Why do we seek so much materialistic wealth? Why do we work so hard to satisfy our soul when soul satisfaction is found only with God. He's the treasure for our physical life. He's the treasure for our emotional life. He's the treasure for our relational life. Our soul will never be satisfied unless we seek it in Him. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the one who is personified wisdom, calls this man a fool. And he says to this fool and to everyone who's like him, verse 21, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The deception of Greed causes us to be stingy toward God. Remember the man who came to Jesus with this question? Well, he was going to go on living whether he got his part or not. That's the reality. Whether whether he ever gets part of his inheritance or not, he's going to go on living in life. In other words, life doesn't consist of what he has, what he doesn't have. But if his heart never knows the greater wealth that's found in Christ alone, it doesn't matter how much he gets. It doesn't doesn't matter what his life is like. It doesn't matter what is satisfying him. He's only a fool. And this is the point. This is the picture that Jesus paints. It's as if Jesus is standing there like a great artist on, in Paris, on Painter's Hill there in Paris, and, and he's painting a beautiful picture of this scene of a rich man building his barns, gathering his crops. 
And at the bottom of the picture, Jesus signs the man's name. Well, beloved, if we, if we look really closely at the picture, we might see our own names there. It's certainly there if we think that having our soul satisfied with earthly and temporal things is living. How much time have you spent, even today, this week, this month, this last year, thinking and pondering about what you will do with what you have or what you desire to have. doesn't matter if that's material things, emotional, settling, relational, settling. How much time have you spent thinking about all that in comparison to equipping your soul to know God and what He has for you and then just resting in that. So often we are greedy for self, but we're not rich toward God. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Why? Why would Jesus say that? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure? Where's your treasure? You say, man, pastor, that was, pretty, that was pretty hard. That's pretty heavy on us. Man, Jesus, why do you talk to us like that? If you think that was difficult, wait till next time. <laughs> this was like getting hit in the face with a feather compared to what Jesus is going to say. Jesus says these things because he loves us. He wants our best. He wants us to live for Him. He wants us to, to be like Him. He wants us to trust the Lord in all things, to rest in the will of the Father who has our best and who is our life. And this earth, the stuff of this earth, anything that's of the temporal world of which the immaterial parts of us, the emotions and the, and the way in which we think about life and, and all those kind of things are all part of this earth. And we can become so greedy for them that we pursue them with all of our being. God says, don't do that. Beware. Watch out. Be careful. Be on guard. Be on guard because the attraction is so attractive. <coughs> But the deception is so real that it will draw your heart away from being rich toward me. We want to be there, don't we? That's where we want to be, rich toward Christ. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, your word is so profound. It's so 
Amazing. It's a simple, simple story. Yet it touches every life, every thought, every intention of the heart. Divides down so sharp, so quick. But you're a loving father, never withholding from us that which we need, always giving us what is best. Lord, we're so thankful for that. Enrich our hearts with this. Help us be rich toward you, even if that means we have nothing materially. Help us be rich toward you, even if that means we're resting in you when our emotions don't want to settle. When we're confused in our minds, help us run to you and rest in what your word says because of who you are, the faithful one who never lies. Help us to just rest in the solid foundation and sufficiency of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and His Word, knowing that You alone are our hope. Never let us be satisfied thinking that, that the temporal things of this world bring us life. Or what is really living is being in Christ. Help us live there. All to your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.